We're going to be at the end of chapter 27 in Genesis, and we'll be going into chapter 28, starting with verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob to her younger son and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take your wife from there, one one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padamaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Armenian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padamaram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padamaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father, Isaac, Esau went to Ish- Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nobiath. It's the word of God. You may be seated. we dive into this uh, last part of 27, first part of 28, I just want to read something from uh, commentator Pastor David uh, Guzik, uh, one of my favorite commentators. I'll read before, even if I don't use anything he has, I read it before I do any message, um, his commentary on uh, well, the whole scripture. And this is what he says at the close of 27. In this tragic story, everyone lost. Each one of the main characters, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. They schemed, maneuvered in human wisdom and energy, re- rejecting God's word, wisdom. Nevertheless, God still accomplished his purpose. This tragedy was that, uh, this tragedy was that each of the participants suffered because they insisted on working against God's word and wisdom. Two weeks ago, I talked about how everybody in this story has their own agenda. And nobody's agenda is to be with the Lord. 
Nobody's agenda is to please the Lord. Everybody has their own personal agenda. And as we close at the end of chapter 27, we see just destruction in this family. This family will now physically be broken apart as Jacob will leave. He won't come back until after Rebecca, his mother, his mother who loved him, who manipulated him, who manipulated the whole family until she dies. This will be the last moments that Rebecca will see the one person whose relationship had not been destroyed. Look at these tragic events. As we look at these tragic events, we should conclude it's really an illustration of what the Lord says in Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 10, starting in verse 37. And really, so much, it's kind of interesting when you read the New Testament, you kind of can go back to the Old Testament to see illustrations of what Christ is saying. Christ is really expositing the Old Testament in the New Testament. Same with the other New Testament writers. So Jesus, he teaches this in chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All the blessings that God gives in our life are wonderful. They're yes and amen. But when we take good things in life and we make them an ultimate thing, they turn into a curse. And that's what we see with Rebecca. She had prayed for Esau and Jacob. She'd received Jacob and Esau, but she focused so much on Jacob. He became somebody who supplants the Lord in her life as Esau in Isaac's life, as Esau's um, carnal nature, his just desire for the things of this world. He was deaf to the proddings of the Holy Spirit. And then Jacob for his own selfish ambition. All of these people are holding on to things that they need to let go or to hold loosely because every blessing comes from the Father of the heavenly lights and every blessing will return to him as well. The purpose of blessing is to drive us to Christ. It's to drive us to relationship with the Lord. So we hold on to those things, even the best of things in life, loosely. When the blessing becomes the God, the greatest, most holy blessings that God gives us, we can twist into idols. We see this within this chapter. We see this in our own life. One of the greatest blessings God gives anybody is children. But so many people abandon the faith because Junior has rejected the Lord. They will modify their theology because their kid, their kid is struggling with some kind of sin. And instead of taking a firm stance that we love Junior, but Junior is not right in this. And here's the fact. I mean, everybody who's a parent here, your kids are sinners. There's always going to be things that they're going to do that you are not going to approve of. But for you to change your theology according to the struggles of your kids means your kids have now supplanted the Lord in that chair in the throne, his throne. God will not take second place. He won't let anyone sit on his throne. Everyone and everything you try to put into his throne will be crushed. And whenever you try to hold on to something, you will lose it. But anything you give up to the Lord for God's care and control, you will have forever. So yes, even the blessings of God become idols in our hands. John Calvin wrote, we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. 
I talk about blessings before in the book of Judges, one of the judges, Gideon, we love Gideon's story. It's the original 300. He takes 300 against the Midianites and it's like, yes, awesome. All, all glory, honor to the Lord. And they even want to make him king. They want to make Gideon king. And Gideon's like, no, 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 no. So he's like, give me, give me an ephod. An ephod was a garment that the priest wore. It's a holy garment according to the worship of Yahweh. He, so he sets it up and it says in the scriptures that they lusted after it and they made it into an idol and it drew their hearts away from the Lord and that his sons became tyrants. Our, the human heart is a perpetual forge of idols. So yes, even, even the best, most holy blessings of God in our hands can become idols if we are unaware when we make those good things and beautiful things, the ultimate thing, the irony is that the harder we try to hold on to that person, thing, situation, status, the more we will lose it and the more it will become a curse to us instead of a blessing. So hold on loosely. Don't let the blessing become another God in your life. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, and I saw recently that uh, Netflix is doing the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm awfully worried about that because they do not have the heart of God. And the Chronicles of Narnia are an allegory for, the, for much of the word of God. Um, so in The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book chronologically, but not published in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and I'm sure everybody wanted to know that. Um, in the book, the main character, Diggory, has a very sick mom. She's on the edge of death. And he, he, he ventures out to Narnia when Narnia is first made. And in Narnia is the, the tree of youth. And the fruit of the tree of youth could actually save his mom. Every character in the story tells him it can save your mom. But it's not his fruit. There's rules about how you can obtain the fruit. And it's through permission. It's by going through the gate, not going as a thief. There's rules on this, and Diggory, even though he's so tempted to take this fruit, he doesn't do this. And Aslan, who is, by the way, spoiler alert, he's Jesus Christ in the story, tells him if he were to take the fruit, if he were to steal it, or if he were to take it at the wrong time, at the wrong place, then eventually him and his mother would save her life, but eventually they'd both agree that she should have died then instead of lingering on. And that's what happens with the blessings of God in our life. When we make them an idol, they become a curse to us. Everything in our life, we should hold loosely knowing that it is the Lord's. It is only given to us for our, for our stewardship for a period of time. Um, I, uh, in my last church over in Dubuque, um, I had the pleasure of co-leading the Celebrate Recovery there. Celebrate Recovery is a, well, it's a recovery program for believers um, I really enjoyed the steps they had. They were based on the Beatitudes. The steps really are just really Christian, basic Christian discipleship. Step three says it's, um, tell, tells us what Christ has already told us in the scripture I just read from Matthew. And what the step is, it's consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. That's just basic Christianity right there. Another way of saying that would be Romans 10, 9, and 10. Um, if we believe in our heart and say with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And we hear that or we hear about consciously commit my life, all my life to God's care and control. We're all like, amen, until God starts getting specific on us. 
Commit all your finances, commit all your money to God's care and control. Wait a second, PJ. What are we talking about now? All you pastors always want to talk about money. No, Christ talked about money almost more than any other topic because that's where our heart is. Where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. Or how about your job? You're getting too personal, pastor. Or your parents, your spouse, your children, your health. I'm just really ripping off Jesus right there who says if you love any of these more than him, you're not worthy of him. There is nothing that Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not look at in your life and scream, mine. Our dysfunction Our rebellion comes when we tell him to his face right back, no, mine. The side benefit of all this is that when we do this, when we choose to commit our, all of our life, all the things in our life, all the people in our life to God's care and control, we can actually rest in knowing that God will work greater than we can work. He cares more than we care, and he has the power to take, to take even the worst of things in life and turn them towards our benefit and to his glory. We can say with Paul when he told Timothy that for I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed in and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep all that I've committed to him against that day. We're right now, we're in the series on the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when God spoke to Moses and Moses said, who are you? He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And we look at the first patriarch, Abraham, in the New Testament, they call him the man of faith. He's the man of faith. And his greatest outward expression of faith was when God told him to take his son, his only son, whom he loved. His greatest blessing, what he had waited for all of his life, this son, the only legitimate son, to take him up to this hill and to sacrifice him Abraham does that because that's what faith does. Faith loves the one who blesses more than the blessing. Faith understands that the things in my life, including people, are only given for me, only given for me to steward for a short period of time. Faith, faith puts Isaac on the altar and faith believes that there will be a resurrection of Isaac as well because that's what Hebrews tells us is that Abraham believed that Isaac would be resurrected. He was speaking prophetically. We see this in Jesus Christ because that's the heart of faith. Faith puts Isaac, puts the blessing on the altar because faith desires the one who blesses rather than the blessing. Doubt, doubt convinces Jacob to deceive his father and to get the blessing for himself. That's what doubt does. Doubt doesn't believe that God can fulfill his end of the deal, so I need to fulfill it myself. And it convinces through hook or by crook to get what we really want. And it prevents Isaac, it prevents Jacob from becoming Israel. This is going to be somewhat of a difficult message for you to hear when you have ki- if you have kids. Because the more we try to hold on to the people in our life, we keep them from living the life that God wants them to live and from becoming all that God wants them to be. Faith puts Isaac on the altar. It trusts even your children to God's care and control. Doubt convinces Jacob to steal the blessing. Doubt, Doubt tries to hold on and crush the thing that we love so that we don't lose it. Worship is not singing songs. Worship is Romans 12, 2. It's being a living sacrifice. 
It's daily dying to ourselves, dying to our desires, daily putting Isaac on the altar and saying, I desire the blessing, the blesser more than the blessing. In the rest of this chapter that Becca read today, we see people holding on to things that they should, that they should let go. And one person who is ready to finally operate in faith to let go the God's care and control. With Esau, we see him holding on to bitterness. With Sarah, she's holding on to Jacob. She's holding on to relationships. And then with Isaac, we see him actually letting Jacob go. With Jacob, for not just the rest of this chapter, but until he wrestles with the angel, he's going to hold on to his selfish ambition, which causes misery upon misery. Verse 41 Verse 41, um, man, this starts off with a bang, this sermon. Es- now Esau hated Jacob. I know families, that's their thing. They tell their kids, don't use hate. That's too, that's too harsh of a word. Say you don't like, and that's, that's fine, by the way. If you want to do that, that's fine. Let me tell you something here. It's not too harsh of a word. If anything, it's too light of a word. A little further on, Sarah, um, uh, Rebecca says that he comforts himself with the, with the thought of killing his brother. The New Testament really gives us our practical application for this event in history when it comes to Esau. I've been kind of, um, I've been quoting certain verses from here, but let's just look at this 14 through 17, Hebrews chapter 12, 14 through 17. This is the wonderful thing about scripture. As we dive into scripture is to know the relevant passages that actually speaks to what we're reading as well in the other parts of the Bible. In verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Esau was not much like that, right? He didn't want peace. He wanted to be angry. Um, I I don't know if this is the same or not. I remember one time there was some situation, and Becca, you probably remember this. It wasn't like in our marriage, but there was some situation in our life, and I was all kinds of upset about it, and Becca's like, let's pray. And I said, I don't want to pray. I want to be angry. (laughs) Strive for peace with everyone and for for the holiness um, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You know, that's the tragedy of Esau. He is with the people of faith. He is with the ones who had been given the, given the covenant, but he misses out. And that's my heart as a pastor. I don't want anybody who's here only to be at the fringes. I want to make sure that nobody fails to obtain the grace of God, reading on here, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. This chapter, there's so much bitterness in this family. Hopefully you don't have a family like that. It's such a sad thing. Even if it's extended family, out to the aunts and uncles, if there's a root of bitterness, it causes all things to just really tighten up. There's no joyness. You see this in churches where a root of bitterness has been allowed to fester spring up and cause trouble, and by, and by it many become defiled. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or ungodly like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Last week I went over this, that Esau... When he realizes what's happened, his birthright is stolen, he weeps like an animal that's hurt without restraint. 
And if we were to look at that, if I'm there, I'm thinking, man, this guy's really sorry. He really understands it. He wants to change his ways. But I wouldn't see with the eyes of God because the eyes of God is impressed with tears. The eyes of God knows whether or not it's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sorry about the consequences. Godly sorrow, heart breaks with the heart of God that breaks over sin and realizes that my sin, it's not just wrong because of the damage it causes, it's wrong because it brought Christ to the cross. Esau here, he's so close to the blessings of God, to the promises of God, but not there. So close to God's ultimate, but ultimately very far away. On top of that, he's let bitterness And through him, bitterness has gone into this family. Sarah will say it's because of his two wives that he just took because he felt like it, that they're such a source. She doesn't even want to live because of these two daughters-in-law. Verse 41 starts, starts off with Esau's hate. Some of your translations will use a different word, but hate is the right word. Even hate is probably not strong enough a word. Jacob may have thought he had gotten away with what he did, but he was very wrong. Esau wants him dead. He comforts himself with the idea of bathing his hands in his brother's blood. He is so bitter. And it's almost like he has a time machine and could read Edgar Allan Poe's poem about a cast of Amontillado in which one person who'd been offended waits until a good long time and walls the offender up and hears his screams and is comforted by them. That is Esau. He is allowed bitterness. And bitterness, it starts off small. It starts off small. Unforgiveness, it starts off small. If it's allowed to grow, it grows like gangrene. It grows like weeds. Do nothing and you will hold grudges. Naturally, we are selfish people. And when we are overlooked, when other people are praised instead of us, bitterness can enter in unless we are ready with the armor of God to keep it at bay. Bitterness starts off with something small. Being overlooked by one parent, being overlooked by somebody. Sometimes even bitterness happens in the church because maybe I didn't mention your name one time when I was thanking people who helped and I didn't mean to, I just was, I was just, my mind is in the scriptures. Maybe bitterness can happen in the church because of an offense that happened years and years ago. The other person doesn't even know about it and bitterness is allowed given fertile ground. Esau wasn't so concerned at the time, but when, he, but when, when Jacob steals his blessing as well, he wasn't concerned about his birthright, but when he steals his blessing as well, he's insane with rage. Bitterness in a family, in a church, is the same way. Someone is overlooked. Maybe it's a small offense, but it's allowed to grow. And in time, it finds fertile ground. And in the heart, if the heart is unaware, the person doesn't even realize they have such bitterness. Here's a good, here's a good thing for you, whether or not you're bitter. Think of the people in your life, and if there's somebody you're like, oh. it's like involuntary, you clench your jaw, you're holding on to some bitterness, my friend. Amen. And you can say all you want. No, I'm not bitter towards them. I've forgiven them. I remember there's this time in my life, so you, I grew up in a single-parent home. Some of the uh, men my mom dated were abusive. And I thought I'd forgiven them. I'm in college or, or late high school. I remember at, 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 I was at church camp. And those of you who go to camp, you know, this is one of the things about camp. Is you're alone with God. And, um, and I'm like, okay, and I believe that I had forgiven this person. And God starts kind of stirring some things up. I don't think much of it. I have this dream in that person that my abuser's in my dream. And I am, I am pummeling him. 
I am pummeling him. It's like my very heart is in my fists and I wake up choking on my own stomach bile. And it's in that moment where God's like, yeah, you haven't forgiven anything. You've covered over. But there is nothing in us that God does not look at and say, mine. And he expects us to take that bitterness and nail it to the cross as well. Bitterness and unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I don't know who came up with that, so I'm going to say me. Um, (laughs) The way to bitterness. There are many roads to bitterness. Let's just look at Esau here. His two roads to bitterness, envy and jealousy. Envy because Jacob has blessings he doesn't have. Mind you, one of the blessings he gives away for some red stuff. Jacob will carry on the family line. Yahweh will be known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, not of Esau. So Jacob has blessings he doesn't have. You know something? I don't care how blessed you are today. There are people who have blessings you don't have. And you have blessings they don't have, but we don't want to think about that. We want to think about when we're in that state of envy, We want to think about the blessings they have that we don't. And we have that attitude of like, they shouldn't have this. I deserve this, then they don't. The jealousy. We see this event at the end of the readings today. He sees that his father, the favorite parent, is happy with Jacob. So he's like, okay, so I'll take another wife too. I I, I smiled when Becca was reading that because that seems like, it seems like the kind of boneheaded thing that maybe I would do. And it's like, oh, so this is good. I'll just do that. Instead of like, repenting of what I've done, like adding something on, being like, God must be cool with me now. The way to bitterness, envy and jealousy. St. Thomas Aquinas said that one of the things of how we can tell whether or not we have envy in our heart is if it's easier to, to weep with those who weep instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice. Envy is most prevalent when it's somebody we know who's excelling at things we thought we should excel at. We love great people. We just love them from afar. And when Jesus was in his hometown, the people there couldn't accept him because he was the carpenter's son. Do you remember Cain? That's Esau's hero. When Cain was filled with envy and jealousy, he too wanted to kill his brother, And the Lord told him before he went into sin, he warned him of it. He said, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. We wonder in ourselves, if we haven't read from Hebrews, whether or not his repentance was real when he was wailing, when he finds out he lost his, when he lost his uh, birthright, when he lost his, the blessing of the firstborn. And we wonder if it's real or not, but we can see in verse 41, no, it's not real because he hates his brother. And in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has, um, who, his brother whom he has seen cannot say he loves God who he has not seen. Esau wept when he lost his blessing and he wanted another blessing. He wasn't repentant. He just didn't like the consequences and his hatred for his brother that he holds on to for a good long while, really until the Lord makes a a change in his life. It proves this. Second point, this is 42 through 46, and this is centered around Rebecca. And she holds on to relationships, specifically Jacob. And she holds on to him so tightly, she loses him. 
Think of all the things that she sacrificed in her own life, her own integrity for her son. And at the end of this chapter, she loses him. She will not see him again in the land of the living. She thinks it's only going to be for a couple days. It's 20 years. Inquire of the Lord. In this section, it's really all about Rebecca manipulating events yet again. Now in her defense, Esau, he is very upset. And it is wisdom that Jacob needs to get out of there or he wouldn't live for very much longer. He comforts himself with the idea of killing his brother. And he isn't a man of word, but of actions. However, what did Rebecca do last time her sons were fighting? It was in utero, within her womb. They were wrestling. She was having a hard time. So you know what she does that she doesn't do here or she doesn't do at the beginning of chapter 27 or really any other time in her life? She inquired of the Lord. She inquired of the Lord. And that's our failings too, right? We think we already know everything. You know, I tell somebody, oh, well, you know, what does the scripture say? Well, I know the scriptures. Do you? Because I'm in the same way. You know, I'm, I'm in the same spots a lot of times where I think I just know. Well, stop and consider. Inquire of the Lord. Do the hard work. Really find scripture that applies to the situation that you're in instead of just assuming, well, I already know. She thought she already knew. She had heard the word of God that the younger, that the older would serve the younger. God didn't say anything about her having a hand in it, of her sacrificing her integrity, of manipulating her sons and her husband to do this. Why doesn't she pray here? Because praying is hard, maybe even impossible when we've already decided what we're already going to do. It's almost an act of futility because we've shut off our heart from the leading of the Lord. We've already decided, I'm going to do this. What does prayer mean? It's like what I talked about before when Becca's like, we should pray. And it's like, I don't want to pray. I want to be angry. <laughs> At all costs, Rebecca will make sure her favorite son is on top. But the cost is dear. Let's go back to Matthew 10, where Jesus says that if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. Maybe if Rebecca had somehow read that, somehow went forward in time and read that, she may have sought the Lord in his righteousness first before manipulation. She could, um, she could have known that if she wants to keep Jacob, she needs to give him up to God's care and control. Instead, she manipulates, and when she manipulates, she loses him. She has created a situation to where she cannot keep him unless she wants one brother to kill the other brother. She even says in here, why should I be reft of both of you? in one day. Because if one brother kills another brother, justice demands his life. What a tangle web we weave when we attempt to deceive. In verse 42, but the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. Before this, he had just said in his own heart, how does she know about this? It's because that's one of the natures of sin. Sin wants to flaunt its rebellion. It wants people to know. This is why undercover cops are so successful, because criminals want people to know what they have done. That's why the old adage, I think, is mainly true. Three can keep a secret if two are dead. And it is the offender who often will tell other people the offense. Criminals want to know other people what they have done. Esau, he is not sad that he feels this way towards his brothers. He is proud and he is biding his time. Did you read further on here? So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts, him, comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Verse 43, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Here she goes, ordering her 
70-year-old son, by the way, in case you're wondering what are the ages going on right here, he's about 70 years old and she treats him like a little kid still. Obey my voice, arise and flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. A while is 20 years. She won't see him in the land of the living again. She tells him not to take from the Canaanites, but to go to, but to, go to, um, to her brother. In verse 45, until your, until your brother's anger has turned away from you and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? When Rebekah um, said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these one, one of these women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So we see where the root of bitterness started right there. It started with Esau's selfish decisions. She doesn't want him to marry amongst the Canaanites because, and I do believe that is a true statement, she sees what happens when you, or you are unequally yoked. When you come from the people of God, but you're marrying outside of the people of God. She even has a good reason, a reason Isaac would be very sympathetic with. But you know something here? When she talks with Isaac, why doesn't she tell him her central concern? Because she's manipulating again. Good manipulators will use the truth to manipulate as well as they will do lies. We might say today it's a narcissistic personality disorder. It's just really just wrong. And it's really just a terrible, it's, it's really treating the people in your life with such contempt. I don't trust you to do the right thing, so I'm going to find the right button to push on you. And she knows that um, Isaac does not want Jacob to marry the Canaanites either. His opinion of the Canaanites couldn't be lower. And you remember when uh, the king of uh, the Philistines came to him and wanting to make peace, wanting to make a treaty, and, and Isaac said, I thought you hated me. He has a grudge against him. Not to mention his own life, his own life and his own wife would see from Abraham that yes, not to marry within the Canaanites, it'd be, it'd be a law that God gives to the Israelites later on. There's good reason for this too. In Amish 3.3, 3, it says, do, do two walk together unless they, unless, um, unless, they have to, uh, unless they have agreed to meet? Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? For those of you who are unmarried today, I urge you with all sincerity and passion in my heart, marry a believer. Marry somebody who believes the way as you believe. It is not a small thing. It is not a small thing. And it's just what'll be, this is the thing, when we are in love, we overlook so much in our life. We see all the warning flags and we're like, oh, it's not, it's not so bad. Okay, that's not a big problem. And all of a sudden those, I can change him, right? I can change her. I can change him. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Marriage is walking together. It's, very, it's almost impossible if you are not linked together in the Lord. It's not impossible. God is the God of the impossible. But it makes it very, very difficult. In verse 44, she sends Jacob away and she's like, okay, it'll just be a little while. It's 20 years. You know, this is one of the things that Abraham was afraid of with Isaac. When Abraham sends his servant out to find a wife for Isaac, who becomes Rebekah, his servant says, what if she doesn't want to listen to me? Maybe if I could go back and I could bring Isaac with me, maybe then she would consider. He's like, and Abraham basically tells him under no circumstances are you to bring 
Isaac back with you. Swear to me now. Make a covenant with me now. You won't do this. He's passionate that Isaac doesn't go back to Mesopotamia, back to the land they'd come from. And we see why now. Because a few days becomes 20 years. And if Laban, her brother, wasn't such a jerk, it probably would have been a lifetime until the Lord physically ripped him away from the area. It's because the old life is comfortable. The Israelites knew this. They're wandering in the desert. They were enslaved in Egypt and they kept saying, hey, you remember how great Egypt was? Oh, it was so wonderful. We got to eat fish whenever we wanted. And Moses is like, and you got beat whenever they wanted. And you worked whenever they wanted. That's what we do with our old life. We get some kind of comfort because we have these rose-colored glasses. This is true even within family stories like we see right here. Mesopotamia is no land of milk and honey. But to go back there has a certain amount of comfort to it that it shouldn't have. And Jacob once again finds this out. Jacob, if you have to learn the hard way, Jacob's your dude. Because Jacob learns everything the hard way. The bone-breakingly hard way that you can learn things. He learns it that way. And I do mean that with almost literal truth. Because God has to take his hip out of place. She thinks, okay, just go over there for a little while until your brother's anger cools off. She, like so many people, do not understand real rage and real hate. In verse 45, she says, until your brother's anger turns away from you. Anger is not like a small little flame. It is a wildfire. She doesn't understand how angry Esau is. He's not irritated. He's filled with murderous fury. It takes an act of God 20 years later before he's able to see Jacob and embrace him again. Verse 46. Verse 46, she continues her manipulation. Things are really broken between Isaac and Rebekah. She is still trying to manipulate him. Why can't she just say, hey, we're about to find out what Adam and Eve felt like. We better get these these boys separated. No, she may say a truth, but it's not the real reason. Isaac, on the other hand, after he has tried to defy the will of God, he now operates in faith and he's willing, he's able to, he's enthusiastic about releasing releasing Jacob to God's care and control. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 28. The rest of Jacob's story, before we get into that, the rest of Jacob's story in his life, um, his life with the Lord he will be so desperate for God's blessing, he will wrestle an angel until dawn. He'll be renamed Israel. But until that moment, he will chase and hold on to his own selfish ambition. In verse one, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanites, Canaanite women. Arise and go to Padamaran, um, to the house of Bethiel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Here's one thing I want to point out here. No disagreement from Jacob. Jacob, for all his faults, he's not an idiot. He knows, can't stay here. He also knows it really broke my my mom and dad's heart when Esau took took those as his wife. He happily leaves. You see within Isaac's blessing here, you see distancing language. You see him say, your mother's family. Your mother's family. It's his family too. It's his family too. I know this is weird for us and the taboos around incest will not be fully developed until the law of God, but it 
They are first cousins. It is his family as well, but he keeps saying, your mother's family. The author wants us to remember who the favorite son is. Uh, Jacob is the favorite son of his mother, Rebecca. That's important for us to see this because she's about to lose her favorite son. In verses three through five, this is the blessing right here. God Almighty, El Shaddai. You know, Amy Grant's song, El Shaddai. God Almighty, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of people. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring and with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Peta Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethiel, the Armenian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. This is a blessing very much like the Abrahamic blessing. This is even more defined than the blessing of the firstborn that he gave before. There is something that has changed in Isaac's heart. He is now ready to let go, to let go and let God do his work in his son's life. This, more, this blessing more closely follows the Abrahamic blessings. Descendants, a promise, a promised land. It will be Jacob, not Esau, that will carry on the family and the covenant God made with Abraham. He leaves and will be gone 20 years, but will come back prosperous. As we continue to read the last section right here, as we leave, we see Esau. In verse six, now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob. And that's important here. Esau's favorite parent was Isaac. Isaac's favorite son was Esau. And as he sees Isaac being, Isaac pleased with Jacob, he thinks to himself instead of, hey, maybe I need to get my things in order and apologize to my mother and father about the way I took my wives. Maybe I need to talk to my wives and be like, stop treating my parents so bad. He's like, I know, I'll get more wives. Isn't that sad? I mean, I, I don't know if you've been in that place before. We're like, okay, we know that there's a place of disobedience in our life. So we're like, okay, but okay, I'm going to give more into the offering this week and God better be cool with it. Because I give so much. I, I do so much for the church. Why does God care about this right here? He cares an awful lot because he doesn't want us to be like Esau, who's godless, who doesn't hear the voice of God, who doesn't understand really what it is. So he figures, hey, if they're pleased with Jacob going to mom's, uh, to mom's family and getting a bride, I'll go to dad's side of the family, Ishmael. Ishmael's dead by this time, so he's going to find more cousins to marry. This doesn't do anything. It's a, nice, it's a nice thing to put in here as we see that he's just completely oblivious to the things of God. The example when we talk about holding on things loosely, giving them up to God, we have an example of one who does this to the zenith degree. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. That means to hold on to. He did not consider the glory he had with God, which is beyond all comprehension to the point where he's in the garden and he's praying to God, may I have the glory, the glory that we shared before the foundation of the world. He did not consider that to be something to hold on to, but made himself obedient to the Father. 
Okay, this goes beyond human comprehension. The more you think of it, the more powerful it becomes. And more than some Sunday school thing or a nice saying that he was equal with God, but does not hold on to it, but humbles himself to the very nature of a servant, to death, even death on a cross. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's our example. All the blessings in life that God has given you, the way you see yourself, all of that needs to be below your relationship with Christ. When it starts bumping up against that, that's when our love starts growing cold. That's when we're like, God, I don't hear God anymore. Well, how can you hear God when you're listening to so much of the music of the world? Of your own music. Hold these things loosely. Let go of things like bitterness. Let go of things like selfish desires, selfish ambition. So Jacob needed to do. So I always have in my, my sermon, you know, the practical application, the challenge. And my question here is, what are you holding on to? This has been my question for this week that has haunted me personally, that the Holy Spirit has been dealing with me personally on. The other, the other day, um, I was in this place and, and it was just like the Holy Spirit spoke this to me. What are you holding on to? And I had to search my heart. It's like, you know what I'm holding on to? I'm holding on to you guys. Like Rebecca held on to Jacob. And I think it comes from a good place, but it comes from a place that ultimately is a bad place in which I want to fix your problems. Let me just be honest with you guys. When you're going through something, it hurts my heart so bad. And I, and I have this unhealthy, ungodly desire to be Rebecca in your life and to hold on to these things. It's why in my life, sometimes people leave the church and I take it personally and I shouldn't take it personally because that's God's sheep and not mine. This is why pastors become tyrants because they hold on too tightly and they start saying, they're my people, they're my sheep, but you're God's people, you're God's sheep. So this is what God has been dealing with me this week on. And now I get to give it to you to deal with. <laughs> what are you holding on to? What are you, what are you holding on to so tightly and God is telling you to let it go, to hold it loosely, to enjoy these things, but don't make it your joy. And I think there was a number of other things, but that was the thing that really stuck out in my life this week is that I was holding so firmly. I was trying to be Rebecca in people's lives and I need to be Isaac who lets them go to be Israel. Maybe you're holding on to bitterness, unforgiveness, and hate and it's time to give it up. It's time to give it up. It's time to stop drinking the poison waiting for the other person to die. God wants to free you from this bitterness because he's come to give you life and give you to the full. Maybe it's relationships. Hold on loosely, strive for their good, trusting them to God's care and control. I know this is hard for parents because you want to keep them. You want to keep them safe. I mean, I'm sure if you could, I mean, right? The parent's heart is that you would, you would keep them in the middle of yourself in order to keep them from any harm. But in so doing, you're keeping Jacob from becoming Israel. 
to let go and let God do his work. Maybe there's a situation with an unsaved loved one or a loved one who's going through a period of disobedience or rebellion, and God wants you to emotionally, not physically, but emotionally, let them go to God's care and control. We see this with codependent relationships. In the codependent relationship, the person who's codependent is rewarding the person's bad behavior, so they continue in the bad behavior, but they love the feeling of being needed by the person who's in the bad behavior, and God's telling you, let them go to God's care and control. They'll be okay. Trust that God has them in the palm of his hand as well. And sometimes you need to release that prodigal to go to the faraway land so that they can start envying a pig's breakfast before they're ready to come back to the father's house. Let go. Like Isaac, let go of the things. Let go of all the things in your life to God's care and control, knowing that everything you give to God will be safe. And that's the thing about it. So many people, they're like, I can't give up on so-and-so. Don't give up on them. Give them to God. Don't give up to them on them. Give them to the Lord because we know, as Paul said, I am convinced. I know whom I have believed in and I'm persuaded he is able to keep all that I've committed to him against that day. Worship team, would you please come up? Like I said before, I am very happy to take the burden of God's word and give it to you this week. Because it's something that the Lord has been dealing with me. And here's the thing, when we do this, that weight we didn't need to carry comes off our shoulders. The Lord who says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. Cast your burdens on me, for I care for you. He really means it. The problem is, because we need to be a living sacrifice, we pick the burden back up, and then we take other people's. And we wonder why it's so heavy. God wants us to really cast our cares on him for he cares for us. We release that to God's care and control. That is what happens. And there's people who've been in my office and we'll go over these and we'll, I'll talk about this. And when that finally clicks in their head, I can see it's, it's like, it's literally their, their shoulders go up. Cast your cares on the Lord for he cares for you. In this last song, this is our moment to reflect on the scriptures to really be more than just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And the section we have right here today, really from the teachings of Christ, to release all those things in our life, all those blessings to God's care and control so that we can love more pure and clearly the people and to enjoy the things in our life without making them our joy. Worship team, would you please lead us in our final song?